night in the Word of what life is really about. Every time we open the Scriptures, I believe God intends for us to uh, have our perspective refined, that we take on His viewpoint about the world, about ourselves, about uh, why we're here. And we need the Spirit of God to work in us to that end. So let's take a moment for silent prayer, make sure we're in fellowship, and then we'll open to Isaiah 20. Let's pray. Our Father, we have come tonight because we want to know you, because we want to enjoy eternal life as your Son defined it, that we would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Father, we think we know what we see, what we observe, what we can determine with our senses. We think we know because we can reason. But these faulty Methods of coming to know have nothing in comparison to your revelation of yourself. Father, open the eyes of our heart tonight to know the riches of your grace and your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're in Isaiah 20 tonight. And in the interest of getting into the ideas of Isaiah, really 19 and 20, I want to remind you of a great story of the scriptures, just kind of whet our appetite for the things of God versus the world that we live in. I'll, I'll do it this way. Here's the concept in Isaiah 20. The concept is, is like this. It's kind of a diagram of reality versus our perception. And this is the box of our experience. I've colored it blue. You might have noticed I kind of like the color blue. This is the box of our experience, and you could color it blue and green if you wanted to to represent the earth, the world we live in, but I just mean where you can think and observe, what you can know with your limited faculties. And in the story of Isaiah 20, you have a prophet from Judah, probably a member of court, a relative of the kings of the line of David, who has been given an oracle about the Gentiles around them because of the political, geopolitical situation in which he finds himself somewhere between 730s and 701 BC. Probably pretty close to, in this this oracle, um, we think, um, I I think it's 711, but I'm not, we're not real certain about it, but it's, um, actually a Ryrie study Bible will tell you the exact year. But the point is, it's in that phase of history when you have these two great kingdoms with Israel caught in the squeeze. And the great kingdom to the east and the northeast is Assyria. You see the chess pieces? Israel feels like it's a pawn with not much military, not much political power, not much way to exert its influence as a vassal. It has to be at the mercy of these giant empires. And so to the northeast, you have the Assyrian Empire, and to the southwest, you have down in Egypt a smaller but more powerful empire than the Israelites, the Egyptians. And the squeeze is, are we going to be able to join together with the Egyptians to fight off the Assyrians? And from notice that they're in the box, that all they know from what they observe and what they can reason without any of God's special revelation is that this is the thing. This is the world we're in, and these are the choices. I can either be taken over and be a vassal of Assyria, or I can join together with the nearest possible enemy of Assyria, and maybe we together can fight off the Assyrian threat. And from a human viewpoint, with our limited experience and perspective, you pick the lesser of two evils and you go with, well, probably the Egyptians to fight off the Assyrians. And so much of Isaiah is written against Egypt for the people of Judah to know that you're not going to join with the Egyptians to fight off the Assyrians. The Assyrians are God's instrument of discipline that will be used to schwack Egypt. And you're not going to win by joining Egypt. Egypt is going down under Assyria, and so are you, is kind of the message of a lot of Isaiah's oracles of judgment in this phase in chapters 13 through 21. Well, this is what we know here below. 
that we've got these two countries, and I might as well pick one or the other. And that's the perspective people have. It's kind of like today in our culture and our political process. I've got the blue-colored folks that are supposedly blue, and then I've got the red-colored folks, how the conservatives became red after all that time of communists being red is a shocking thing that we allowed to happen. But, um, but you've got the blues and the reds, right? And I'm not talking about the bloods and the crips or anything like that. We're just talking about the political reality, and we're like, well, we've got to make sure that the red gets in there because the blue, oh, the blue represents inflation and, and abortion and the open border and all the things that are the, the party platform of the godless uh, liberals. And so, and so we've got to make sure that somebody powerful enough, somebody with enough clout, somebody with enough moxie gets in there and owns the libs and wins. And then we'll be okay, but we won't be okay. Because neither of these lesser evils, or the greater evil or the lesser evil, isn't God's ultimate solution for the brokenness that is our civilization. And it may be, the Bible doesn't say, and uh, we don't have a prophet here like Isaiah to tell us, it may be that we're here to be disciplined as a, as a civilization by the weak rulers like Egypt had in, in Isaiah 19. And it may be that... Um, that uh, God gives us a break from, uh, from the this further disillusion of our civilization. One number I saw today, okay, was uh, 30 trillion, our debt. One, one count was over 30 trillion. How anyone had enough time to count up to 30 trillion? I'm not sure how you made that calculation. My calculator won't go to 30 trillion. Um, I mean, on an abacus or whatever, that, that's a big number that I can't even grasp. And uh, what does that mean? Well, in modern monetary theory, it doesn't mean anything. Like your, your currency. <laughs> in, in, his, in history, in the real world, it means we're in a lot of trouble. Uh, and the, the bill's going to come due. It must inevitably come due, I think, at some point. And the slavery we are all in together to this debt is uh, not felt yet, but perhaps it will be. And the point I'm making is, here below... Without revelation from God, we see these problems and we try to think of human solutions to them. And pardon the image here, but if God reveals himself as the glorious light of the Shekinah, as the rabbis called it, the, the, the presence, the settled presence of God on the tabernacle in light. And, the, and if, if that, that's my illustration of God, if you will, or the things of God or the abode of God, and we'll just talk about him in terms of his, of his attributes, his sovereignty. Don't make any pictures of God. I'm just saying, here below, in the limited frame that we can see, we see the little factors we've got, like Assyria and Egypt. But there are the things above. There is what God is doing beyond our perspective. And I've drawn it a little bit to show you that one is bigger than the other. In fact, the things of God are infinitely greater than the limited frame we live in, and that's the constant repentance the Bible calls us to is to take our perspective so limited here on earth and remember the things of God and say, oh yeah, sovereignty. Oh yeah, God is omnipotent. Oh yeah, he's righteous and holy and he's at the switch. He's, he's fully aware of all. God, don't you see what's happening? He sees what's happening and he's fully aware of it. And do you, don't you know what wickedness is going for? He knows and he has it and he has you. And him having the situation, having you might mean that it goes different in the grand story, the way it unfolds, than you and I might write it. That's why he's the sovereign and we're not. But we have to go from what we know here below to the fact that the eternal God is our refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. And the way you get this perspective, the only way I know to get this perspective is to open the book, is to go back to the word and then live our lives, and then go back to the Word, and then live our lives in the light of the Word, and then go back to the Word. And you have to stay under the tap if you're a crackpot. <laughs> you have to stay under the tap to stay saturated, stay full. The sponge dries out if we don't go back to the source and get refreshed with the uh, Word of God. And so what's this arrow represent? Can the folks at home see it? I don't know. It probably looks like it's come out of the side of my head. <laughs> 
what does that arrow represent? That's right at that line, that break between the things you can see and the things that you can't. And I don't mean to do a Kantian dualism or anything like that. I'm not saying that there's Plato's dualism or Kant's dualism or anything. I'm just saying there is a limit to our awareness from our perception. And then there's the infinite things of God beyond what we can see and reason. And that line, that line is an important line. You need to know that's there, that there's something beyond, there's a lot of something beyond what you can see or what you can even know from your limited faculties. And the way we get at the thing that's beyond is not from uh, conjecture. We don't jump to conclusions and wonder who is Klaus Schwab's most likely candidate for the false prophet. We don't get there by conjecture or by mystical intuition. We get there by the special revelation of God we have in the Word. So let me, let me tell you a story or read a story with you. In 2 Kings chapter 6, one of my favorite stories to kind of paint the picture of where that line is, and it's really there, and God allows it to be there, and he's got the blinders on us, and it's okay that it's that way. The king of Aram, that's Syria, was warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And then the man of God, Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware, you do not pass this place, for the Arameans are coming down there. The king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. Now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? They've covered my spot that I wanted to bivouac. How did they know that that was my place? Well, God told the man of God, special revelation, it's a special G2 revelation, where the enemy king's going to encamp. So, so, see, it's not fair. God is putting his thumb on the scale in the checkers game here for the king of Israel. And so the king is having a staff meeting. Who is telling the king of Israel what I'm going to do? Who's the spy? Is his question. One of the servants said, no, my Lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. See, this guy, he's down here in what we know here below. And Elisha is being given special revelation from God about the nature of ultimate and actual reality beyond what we can perceive. And when you realize that that's what we're up against, you have two choices. Break down before the creator and say, I'm yours. Or insist on the idiocy of forced self, self-imposed ignorance. So it's interesting how Israel be, is, a, is an example to the nations. So he said, go and see where he is, that I may sin and take him. And it was told him, saying, behold, he is in Dothan. So I'm going to, okay, so if, if God, Yahweh of Israel, is telling this prophet the secret information, I'm going to go get the prophet. That's not exactly the right interpretation of the circumstance, is it? Because you're talking about the creator, but he doesn't, he doesn't get it. He just thinks there's a magic man, there's a, there's a shaman, or there's a, there's a, a wise man. He sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was encircling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And I want you to understand, Hebrew narrative is written very much like a screenplay would be shot. When you, when you learn it in its structure and its original language, and it kind of comes out when you read it in English, it's written like a screenplay, behold this thing. So the camera is now showing you in a wide angle this army surrounding the city. And then it zooms in, and all of a sudden you're looking at the various trappings of the, of the armor on the horses and the chariots and all the, and you, and the, the camera pans past all the gleaming spear tips lined up that don't have any blood on them yet. And, you, and, it's, and you're scared because you see this big army. Behold, this army with its chariots and its horses. And, the, and you are in the perspective as he writes it. The prophet wrote this where you're in the perspective of the servant of Elisha coming out to see it. And you're shocked at the vision of this, of this military. It's a screenplay. We didn't get the idea of doing this um, 
uh, and, and, then, and then we're reading it back into the Bible. This is how you tell a story, and technology has enabled us through cameras to tell a story with images and dialogue. And it, it, in other words, um, this, this is a little movie here written in the text. And it's not an accident that uh, visual screenplay art is uh, compelling because it, it tells the story like the writing does here. And I'm not telling you to watch movies. I'm just saying there's a reason why it's compelling. Well, anyway, the servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And you and I are with the servant. What shall we do? There's a giant army. There's, there's, no, there's no recourse. They're about to all be slaughtered. So he answered, Do not fear. See, Elisha's not living in the box because he's got special revelation. So he knows to say, Yeah, we got this. He's very calm. He's very cool. He's a cucumber about this. Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Well, that must be nice to know that. And, and the, see, at this, at this very important moment where the arrow is showing, the servant is still here. Elisha's not. He, the, the line has been removed enough for Elisha that he is uh, not really believing. He is seeing. Now, he's been told it's a revelation to him. He has believed it, so he's assuming it. And we don't know, <coughs> we don't really know what Elijah sees, <coughs> but visual is very important here because of what happens next. Elisha then prayed and said, Oh Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elisha. And you know the story. And now we are challenged in our imaginations to think of what Elisha's servant saw. What was Elisha seeing? Was he already looking at this and said, Lord, let him see too. And so Elisha is, sees something that's always there. It's, it was there already. And now it's a surprise to the servant because he sees what he didn't see before. And now this overlay of the supernatural host of God in defense of its, its angels. It's an angelic army surrounding Elisha. Oh, I feel a lot better all of a sudden because I'm seeing what I didn't see before. And this is, I believe, one of the greatest, most compelling stories of what God's revelation is supposed to do. Revelation means the uncovering. That's all it means. Apocalypsis is the Greek revelation. It means opening the curtain. It means what you couldn't see before, you take, you take the sheet off the prototype car, there it is, it's revealed. God is opening to us the things that we could not know unless he told us. And here's the other side of that part of God being God and sovereign and, and, and uh, the creator, is once he's told us, we're responsible to know. And he holds us responsible to know. And I, I love this story that God takes the blinders off. Chariots of fire around Elisha. When they, had, when they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people with blindness, I pray. So he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. The theme by God's design in his story here, the theme is what you see. So now these, these people that are occupying this space, the Aramean army, is now blind. They don't even function very well in this frame, they can't see anymore. So their, their revelation, their perspective is, is seriously decreased. Like when God tweaks uh, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. Then Elisha said to them, this is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he brought them to the capital, to Samaria. Which area? Samaria. When they had come into Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And then the king of Israel, the capital city being Samaria, when he saw them, said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? <laughs> I'm thankful, it turns out, that he asked the question instead of just presuming. He answered, You shall not kill them. Would you kill those who have take, you've taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them. They may dr eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. When they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. 
marauding bands of Arameans did not come again into the land of Israel. And that's a fantastic story, but the theme is what you see. And this line right here is wearing you and me out daily as we look at the news, as we see the civilization decline. We feel like we're playing in the quartet or whatever on the bow of the Titanic while it's sinking. We feel like the whole, the, the, the whole civilization is dissolving. We are in the midst of a transitional moment perhaps in history that we haven't had to go through and our parents didn't really have to go through, but their parents saw some hard times. The World War II generation saw the Depression and then the war. And if that generation had to face World War I and then, then the next, the, World, uh, the Depression and the rest of World War I and World War II, if they had to face it, given the circumstances and cultural you know, rot that existed then, I wonder how much more should we expect to face some seriously hard times. Here below, I can see in the news that Russia is friends with the Saudis more and more now. There's, they're, they're getting cozy with the Saudis, and that's bad for the oil market. That's okay, though. Don't worry about it, because we have figured out that we can make windmills that don't really work and, uh, and, and solar panels that don't really work enough, and, uh, and then we can get electric cars that can't be recharged when it gets too hot or cold. So don't worry, we, f- we figured this out. No, we've got Egyptian rulers from, from chapter 19 of, of Isaiah. See, we're in trouble. It seems that we're in a lot of trouble geopolitically, historically, and here below we might be afraid of, of the consequences of the disasters that seem to be being set up right in front of us. We're like mice with watching somebody bait a trap, our, our, our civilization is. And, and there's cheese on the trap. We're like, huh, look at that. That's a trap. He's setting that trap. We're about to go eat that cheese. And we can see it in so many ways in our culture, in our civilization. What are, what are we going to do about it? Well, quit biting your nails. And we need to stop looking so hard at the bridles on the horses and the gleaming spear tips. Because there is more to what's going on, infinitely more, than what we can see. And it may be that the times we're living in and about to move through were prophesied by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy. It may be that we have a, the description of our times. What did Paul say in 2 Timothy? Time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They'll accumulate from themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. They'll turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths but you be sober in all things and endure hardship. It may be that that's a good description of at least this civilization, the time we live in. Realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come, 2 Timothy 3. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, that's verbally abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Lovers of pleasure, not among Christians, not Christians that love to satisfy their need for stimulation or their desire for stimulation more than they love their creator. No, 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 not, not today, right? Holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. And he says to Timothy in that day, 2,000 years ago, avoid people like this. They had people that then. But he's saying there's coming a time when this is going to characterize civilization. And uh, we kind of scratch our heads and say, well, I don't want that to characterize me. I don't want it to characterize any of you. But is that not kind of a portrait of, of our civilization as it, as it careens? Maybe he's prophesying of our time. Well, with that introduction, let's actually do turn to Isaiah 20, where um, uh, he's going to close down what he did in chapter 19 with the oracle of judgment against Egypt that will end in their deliverance in the coming kingdom. And Isaiah 20 says, In the year of the commander, that the commander came to Ashdod, when Sargon the king of Assyria sent him and fought against Ashdod and captured it. And I had that date, and, I've, and I lost it. It was in my head, and it's 
Something else pushed it out. So that's in Uriah in the note in verse 2. 711. I knew it was 711. Anyway, at that time in the year 711 BC, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amot, saying, Go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips and take your shoes off your feet. And he did so, going naked and barefoot. But the Lord said, and the Lord said, Even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years as a sign and token against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, to the shame of Egypt. That's the New American Standard. Then they will be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and Egypt, their boast so the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day behold such is our hope where we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria and we how shall we escape that's Isaiah chapter 20 Isaiah 20 is an interesting thing because it's the only place in the long annals of of Isaiah's oracles where God uses him as an object lesson he does this with Ezekiel quite a lot at one point he tells Ezekiel take a brick and lay siege to the brick he tells Ezekiel another time, put a hole in the wall and then climb out the wall. Thus will, uh, people are going to come lay siege to, to Jerusalem. Thus will you exit the wall. Um, uh, you, you'll go out of your house through the back wall because the enemy is coming in through the front door. He's, he's always doing this with Ezekiel. Uh, Jeremiah's got the waistband. And Jeremiah does several interesting things. Well, this is, uh, I would trade um, all the other guys they're, they're one for this one. I, I would say, um, Lord not I, uh, on the, the going around uh, uncovered, the way the Lord has required Isaiah to do it. But let's look at it. In verse 1, he says, In the year Tartan, that's what the New King James and King James say, because that may either be a name, like or Rabshaka, the, the, the chief uh, cupbearer, or it may be the captain, but uh, that's the word, Tartan, went into Ashdod when Sargon, king of Assyria, sent him. Ashdod's the, the, one, of the cap, one of the capital cities or one of the cities of the Philistines. We've had an oracle against the Philistines, and the Philistines got rolled up by the Assyrians, just like everybody else in the region, as prophesied, as we've already heard. When this happened, uh, he fought against Ashdod and captured it. It's in that year that that took place, so it's really uh, specified. At that time, the Lord spoke in the hand of Isaiah, son of Amot. It says literally, in the hand, Bayad, in the hand of Isaiah, Yesha Yahu, Yesha, salvation is of Yahu, of the Lord. At that time, the Lord spoke in the hand of Isaiah, son of Amot, and he said, Go and open the sackcloth from upon your hips or your loins. A word that in Hebrew is the dual form, which is not always, it's not a real common thing. We have duals, but things that come in pairs like lips and eyes and ears are duals in Hebrew. And in an ayim, like cherubim, it'd be like cherubim. Well, this is the word for hips, and it could also be loins. It's this part of the body. Now, those that say, and it's very popular in modern scholarship to say, this is Isaiah taking off his outer garment so that he's just going around in his tunic and his, you know, and his uh, loins cloth. Those that say that, I want them to be right. I'm not certain I'm convinced of that, but here's the summary. Isaiah is dressed like a prisoner of war. That's a good way to think about this. He is dressed like somebody who's been vanquished in a military engagement, and, and, uh, and he goes around like this. And apparently, God makes him do it for three years. Again, what do you want me to do, Lord? This is my life. You use it for your purpose, and I will give you whatever you want of myself. Whatever I have, whatever I own is yours. I believe that's what the whole burnt offering in Israel was to portray, is the whole person belongs to God. I think that you and I are supposed to say, like Jesus teaches in the discipleship discourses, that everything I am is yours, and I lose my life for your sake so that I find it, instead of holding on to my life and therefore lose it. God, I'm yours. So far, he hasn't asked me to do this. And y'all can say amen for that, and I can say amen for that. But think about this. He's dressed in rags or less because he's portraying prisoners of war, captives who have been enslaved by the Assyrian military juggernaut. The Assyrians have rolled through Egypt as the portrayal and everybody's a captive. Everybody's a prisoner of war. So, yeah, I don't think God's going to speak to you from on high and say, uh, strip down and go about. Not going to happen. 
But if the life circumstances that you're in leave you bereft of your possessions, your comforts, and you find yourself in that cattle car or in that concentration camp or in that horrific consequence of man's wickedness under Satan's direction, oppressing even the righteous, if you find yourself in rags or less, you trust the Lord. You say Isaiah had to do it, and he was told with, they weren't under siege, and he had to go about like they were. We're not any better than Isaiah was. He's the prince of the prophets, and he was humiliated for God's sake to do this. And we kind of think, wow, I'm glad God doesn't ask us to do that. Well, if he ever should, by the circumstances that you're in, wear it proudly. Go forth as God's representative, as many breaths as he allows you to draw on this earth, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and representing the one Isaiah was named after when he was called Salvation is from Yahweh. Go and open the sackcloth from upon your hips and your sandals take off from upon your feet. And so he did thus going naked and barefoot. And these two words, here's what the, what the scholars do. They say, well, if it's talking about sandals, then it probably doesn't mean like you wouldn't think he's naked means no, no clothes on at all. And then he's got his sandals on. If it meant no clothes, then you wouldn't say also barefoot. So the theory for some is that this means stripped down where people are like, what's wrong with him? He is not dressed like we're supposed to be dressed. And so that it's not like the moral question of like someone walking around exposing their, their privates or something. But, but think about what uh, happened in, um, in after Kristallnacht, what happened to the Jews. Think about what photographs came back uh, when the, the allies liberated Dachau and, uh, and um, the other concentration camps, the, the Auschwitz, and, and what they found there. They found a lot of people with no clothes on who had been oppressed by some Assyrians, pardon the expression. So I don't know. I don't know what this means as far as uh, the level of... of a disgrace to to Isaiah, but I just know that um, if if it's the Creator telling me what He wants, I'm going to do it. I'm going to say that um, back to my picture before. Well, I don't know, but if God is using me to reveal something, to communicate something that gives people the perspective beyond this this frame of limited understanding, so that we know more, which is what He's doing through Isaiah, then. I have to accept it. And I think the greatest application is that we haven't had to do this, but should we have to because of the privations of military conquest, then, um, then we should be ready. All right. A lot of the commentaries talk about whether he's naked or not. <laughs> There's a lot about whether he's wearing a tunic or, or just or nothing. But I tend to think he's probably going about in a loincloth because of what happens next. Then the Lord said, just as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years. This is an interesting uh, commentary right here. You can't really probably make out much of this commentary, but... The Masoretes, the guys that edited the text and gave us the form we have it in today, about eight or 900 A.D., they put a big pause right here after naked and barefoot. And then the sentence goes on, three years, uh, a sign and wonder. And so um, it's almost like three years goes with the next line, but almost everyone interprets it this way, that he went naked and barefoot for three years. Isaiah is roaming around, uh, like a prisoner of war for three years. A sign and wonder upon Egypt and upon Cush. Now, now we started with in the day, in the year which Ashdod got rolled up by the Assyrians, by, by Sargon's man Tartan. But now it's, a, it's an oracle against Egypt and Cush. And so that's interesting historically. And the idea is the people on the street back here in what you can know versus what God has revealed... People on the street are wondering, why don't we just, uh, just soldier up with, with the Egyptians to fight the Assyrians? And God says, the Assyrians are going to be naked and barefoot. I'm sorry, the Egyptians are going to be naked and barefoot because the Assyrians are going to do that. And that's the historic prophecy that God is giving through Isaiah. So 
So Isaiah has been for three years a sign and wonder upon Egypt and upon Cush, a sign and wonder representing what God is going to allow the Assyrians to do to Egypt. So the king of Assyria will lead the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot. Same language he said three times now, naked and barefoot. Okay, Um, why does he put Egypt and Cush together historically? This is one of your evidences for the Bible, for the value of it, the validity of the word of God. Why does he put Egypt and Cush together? Because as we saw last time in the map, go further south from Egypt down the Nile, you end up where the Cush Cushites are from, and a Cushite um, uh, military force conquered Egypt apparently a little bit before this time, and you had Cushite dynasty among the Egyptians. So the Egyptians are ruled by Ethiopians. And so there's this interesting trans-Nile, you know, or up and down the Nile thing going on in Egypt. And so the, the, it's kind of like a block. Egypt and Cush is a, is a geopolitical block. Um, and uh, that's good because more military power, but it doesn't matter. They're going to get defeated by the Assyrians, the king, king of Assyria. And thus, with buttocks uncovered, will be the nakedness of Egypt. So you have to say that it's very likely, given the explicit nature of this word here, that we're talking about um, the, um, the loincloth idea. And so they will be terrified and ashamed because of Cush, their hope. They will be terrified and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and because of Egypt, their pride, their boast, their glory. They're to ferret. This is the great message that Isaiah has for Judah. The reason the prophet in Judah is saying this and doing this, he didn't go about in a loincloth or whatever, uh, in front of the Egyptians. He did it in Judah. Because the, the idea for the people that are living their lives under the sun is that we have to deal with Assyria and we're going to do what's necessary and we've got to work out our thing. And they don't realize that, as Isaiah has been saying all through 20 chapters now, God is sending the Assyrians to punish us for our idolatry. We are, we are bearing uh, the consequence of our wickedness and God is using the Assyrians and he uses these great godless or, or pagan empire builders to the northeast in the land between the rivers of Mesopotamia, the Assyrians in, in the 8th century BC and then in the 7th century BC and 6th century he uses the Babylonians, the, the, the people that are just to the south of them and the, Nineveh, the people from Nineveh that built their empire, the Assyrians, are different people group from the Chasdim or the Chaldeans from Babylon. Uh, but it's the same area and it, God used both of these Gentile powers to discipline his people for the same issue, for their idolatry. The Assyrians, you remember, destroyed the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar, from the same area, a century later, destroys the southern kingdom in 605, 597, and finally completely destroys and burns the temple in 586 B.C. The temple of Solomon is destroyed and the last of the Israel, the, the Judahites are deported in the 70 years of rest, the, seven, the, the Sabbaths that God has required of, of the land. They find, the land finally gets its Sabbaths. And, uh, and you have the, the, what we call the Babylonian captivity. And why does God do this? Why? Back to our little image of what we can see here on earth. Maybe God's there, maybe he's not, is the way people are down here. The way we are with what we can reason, what we can observe well, maybe, maybe, I mean, you know, you're religious. That's good for you. But you can't really know the stuff up here is what Kant does. You can't really know the, the other, the supernatural. No, God has spoken. He's revealed. He's told us. And in this world that you can observe, you have plenty of evidence in Romans 1 to know that you have a creator with, with his infinite power and attributes. So we know his mighty power because of his creation. And so what we see in the natural world has to come from a supernatural source or it has to be supernatural in itself are really the two options, eternally pre-existing matter or an eternal God who's presently been, been forever present who made it all. And so what I'm saying is that the truth is not that the Assyrians are bigger and more powerful than the Egyptians and Judah. And so if they could only have mustered a big enough army, they could have whipped the Assyrians. It's not true. The truth is that these people are the apple of God's eye and they disobeyed him. They broke the covenant and they are getting the consequences of Leviticus 26. They broke covenant and they get the consequences. 
and it's military disaster and eventual total deportation. And it's horrible. It is bordering on unthinkable. And it's way worse than go around naked for three years. It's, it's unthinkable, the horrors that happened in, Ju- in Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar finally destroyed, after a siege, destroyed the city. Military invasion is worse than we think. And you and I need to have this eternal perspective uh, if we're going to face it here, if ever we are required to face it. All right. So, so in verse 5, they will be terrified and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, because of Egypt, their pride, or their boast, or their glory. Who is supposed to be the hope of Israel? The Holy One of Israel. The God who is their refuge, the only one who can provide for them, the only combatant that matters on the battlefield, as we learn at the conclusion of this portion of Isaiah in chapter 37, when he does defeat the Assyrians. Single-handedly, the angel of the Lord does it. Who is supposed to be your hope as the creator? But how would you know that? You've cracked a book. You would know it because you have availed yourself, not of your intuitions or your mystical ideas or leanings, not because you can see God or not because you audibly hear God and so you have empirical evidence of God, but because you've gone to his revelation and you've heard what he said and he's given you his perspective. And just like the servant of Elisha learned, great, more, there are more with us than with them. And if you could see in the eternal sense, what's going on in the, in the realms above, if you could see what God is doing beyond what is your perspective, uh, it would probably blow your mind. But we don't need that. We don't need to see that, apparently, because God hasn't provided. We have everything in the Word of God that we need for life and godliness, says the Apostle Peter. And Paul says what we're reading here in Isaiah chapter 20, verse 5, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It's a message that you and I desperately need, but what does it do for us? It gives us that eternal perspective. It's not about the geopolitics. It's about the creator who is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And so the inhabitant of this coastland will say in that day, and this is an interesting statement because the recipient of this oracle is Judah, and they're called a Gentile coastland. It's, it's, a, it's a rebuke. The inhabitant of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, thus is our hope, where we fled for help, to be delivered from before the king of Assyria. Remember Rob Shaka? Remember what he says about the, um, you, you can't go to Egypt for help, they won't help you? Remember all that stuff about Egypt? This is the political, the geopolitics of his perspective. And it turns out that a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. A, a broken clock's right twice a day, right? Um, the Rob Shaka is correct that they cannot rely on Egypt, but at the same time he's wrong because they do need to trust alone in Yahweh, their creator, with whom they are in a covenant. Behold, this is our hope where we fled for help to be delivered from before the king of Assyria. So how may we escape is the end of the oracle about Egypt. The oracle about Egypt in chapters 19 and 20 is so that Israel will know, Judah will know, that this is no hope that they are on the chopping block of the Assyrians just like you are. And God is not going to allow you. He's not, well, maybe the Lord will bless our union. He's not. It's not the way for you to go, Judah. You're not going to get it through Egypt. Now, I want God to tell me, to tell our representatives, our rulers, what should be the right course. I want him to say, go with this alliance or that alliance, and he doesn't. But what we can apply from this is that our hope is not in our leaders. It never has been. Our hope is not in our political alliances. It's not in our military. Our hope is alone in God, who is our provider and our creator. And we want to be certain and careful to be about his mission, his business, because it is martial. You, you are in a war, whether you ever hear a gun fired, whether you ever see any battlefield smoke, you are in a war. You're born into a war. It's an invisible war. And I'm not proposing that we take up physical arms in the conflict I'm talking about. At times it boils over into, into uh, flesh and blood and it's a mysterious thing and I don't, I'm not talking to that. I'm talking about the fact that the, the way God has set up history, he, the sovereign and omnipotent God, has allowed for us to be in this uncomfortable circumstance that we find ourselves in human history where... Uh, uh, Satan is called the, the prince of the power of the air. He's the ruler of this present world darkness. And he has deceived 
all the nations, and they're all the sons of disobedience, and he's the prince of, of rulership over the spirit that pervades the sons of disobedience in Ephesians 2. And God permits that, and you you were this way. You were deceived, and you were under this cloud, but if you've trusted in Christ, you've been, you've been redeemed. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, 13 and 14, you've been, uh, uh, what does he say? The Father has taken you, has transferred you from the domain of darkness, and he has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And that kingdom isn't uh, physically present on earth, but yet you belong to it. It's your nation. It's your identity. It's your ultimate personal uh, connection uh, to God. Because that's, that's what he's done with you. And you're marked out to rule with Christ in his coming kingdom. So what, so what are we doing? Well, it's military. You put on the full armor of God because you have to stand against the wiles of the devil. And that was true back in the 1950s when things seemed to be going pretty well. We're victors. We just have to deal with this new... Uh, we, we have nukes. Uh-oh. Some of our own people were traitors and gave the communists the nukes. Well, what was pretty comfortable for a minute is now real uncomfortable with the Cold War. So now everybody's worried about, are we going to get nuked? Are they going to destroy the planet? You know, all through that time frame of the Cold War, and even today as there's a crazy Russian threat of nuclear war, he's talking about that now. We're worried about that again. This planet is going to go through everything God says in his scriptures is going to go through. We're not going to destroy this planet with nuclear war. The, it, God's preserving this planet for his judgment. So what am I saying? I'm saying that you and I should be brought to a great place of personal spiritual destitution if our hopes, if our confidence is in anything less than God, than his care for us. And that's day by day. You're fighting this fight every single day of your life. And what happens here with us is we can join with the people on the streets of Jerusalem that understood the message that Isaiah has carried forth in his physical play of dressed like an Egyptian POW for three years. We can say, we have no recourse. We have no hope. We have no escape except our creator, except our God. There is no standing against the wiles of the devil except by the shield of faith. The shield of faith is the only thing that extinguishes flaming arrows. And while uh, you and I may be headed for some very, very, very uncomfortable times, economically, politically, socially, we may be headed for some really awful times of national disaster, um, the immaterial things of God, the spiritual truths of him as our provider are no different under those conditions than they are right now as we're comfortable. And so, I mean, this is the time to prepare. If anything, it's time to stock up on the word. It's time to, to really double down. If, you, if you're at ease enough where you're not scrounging the ground for food, right? If we're not trying to barely eke out a subsistence existence because uh, we have plentiful food and prosperity here still, this is the time to stock up on prayer. This is not a stock up on your, on your time in the word. This is the time to do what you're doing what we're doing here, being about the things of God, because uh, the hard times in history are likely coming. But we don't want to forget that it's a spiritual thing. It's amazing how when the national disaster comes, the immaterial things haven't changed. The fact that there are more with us than with them hasn't changed. The reality of the actual facts of, of, the, of history and the universe, God's plan is, is coming right along. You know, um, uh, things aren't falling apart. Andy Woods will say this all the time. If we're looking at the prophetic uh, fulfillment, of, like a, a setup for things to, to take place that are described in Revelation with, you know, the, the different factors like Revelation 13, the mark of the beast and the vaccinations and stuff. If that's a, a, a forerunner where they're forcing people to do this for them to participate in the culture. I mean, that's exactly what happens in Revelation 13 with the mark of the beast. So, so let's say that this is setting up for those things, stage setting. Well, Andy's good about this. He says it's not about that the whole culture is falling apart. No, things are falling into place because God has a bigger plan than red, white, and blue and, uh, and the bald eagle. God has a bigger plan than, um, you know, do we get to have our lifestyle? 
God has a bigger purpose in mind for you than, um, than the things that you're worried about. You know, am I going to have my job next week? Or uh, will I be able to feed my family? Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, Jesus says, and all these things will be added unto you. But this eternal perspective that we will be stabilized by, that shield of faith that is the only thing that extinguishes Satan's flaming arrows, is only possible as we avail ourselves to the word of God, to the things of God. And so in that sense, let's close down with a word from the Lord Jesus on Matthew five and God, Matthew 6 and God's provision for us. What does the Lord say about um, our worry and despair about uh, the needs, the temporal needs that we have? Uh, Matthew is writing to a Jewish Christian readership early in the church age and between 45 and 65, somewhere in there in the early years of the church. When Paul is sending up a collection, taking up a collection for the uh, poor saints in Jerusalem who have been um, put under uh, persecution and uh, various pressures. And the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, again, before his crucifixion, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they'll be noticed by men when they're fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. What Jesus is talking about is what we've been talking about. He's talking about this. You see down here below that people notice you and they're impressed by your fasting. But your father is really what you're about. You're not about the things you can see or whether you get an attaboy from your friends, is Jesus' point. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. This is Jesus saying this is an important line. The father is in secret. He doesn't let you see beyond this. You have to trust him. You have to take his word on faith and and deal with him through this veil because you can't see him. And so your father who's in secret is going to reward you. And so that's a, that's a, do I trust him kind of thing? That's a, the one who comes to God must believe that he is and he's a rewarder of those who seek him, who diligently seek him in in, uh, Hebrews 11, 6, right? So don't come to God, and I know you're stingy and you don't really love me, but I'm going to ask you anyway. No, he's the God who loves you, and he wants to uh, reward those who diligently seek him. So when you pray, let's see, um, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Can you see my little diagram here and what he says? Treasures on earth, where you can see it. And I got my, check my bank account. It is what it is. But he says, that's not where the wealth is. So we're fools to the world by saying it's not the temporal things, it's the eternal things that are our focus. But here's what happens. When our attention goes beyond what we can see and touch to the things of God, what happens? What happens? Well, there's light because you're looking at the light. Where your treasure is, your heart is also, which explains the next section. The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. The eye being the lamp of the body means that your eye is like a window, and if light is shining through the window, light. But if you're looking with your window, if it's oriented toward darkness, then how great is the darkness? See, the light is a passive light. It's a, it's a window. So that's why it says keep seeking the things above. So this is about orientation in life. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? That only makes sense in light of what he said before, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What are you looking at? What are you looking at will determine whether you're light or dark inside. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and serve the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. See, wealth that he's talking about is this stuff down here, where the, mar- where the tanks roll, where there are all those horses and chariots. But God is the God that goes beyond. He's the God beyond the sun. He's the God that you only know really in any depth because of his special revelation that goes beyond the general revelation of his creation. And so the one who revealed him the best 
the word who became flesh, is telling us how to think about life and our needs. And he says, you can't serve wealth. It's scary. Because wealth is how you eat. Wealth is how you feed your family. And that's why he says the next thing. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor your bodies, what you'll put on. Is not the body more than food. Life more than food and the body more than clothing. And then he describes the animals. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. How, and you're not, are you not worth much more than they? Who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God who so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown to the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? See, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know that there's the God stuff we talked about in church, but I got to take care of my business. And that mindset is serving wealth. No, no, no. I'm not, I'm not trying to buy a boat. I'm not trying to have the big house. I'm just trying to get by. I'm just trying to feed the family. Bologna sandwiches stuff. I got to feed the family. Jesus is talking about that. He knows your needs. He knows that you need to clothe your family. He knows you need to, to eat and they need to survive. That's really what the wealth is for. It's, it's, economics is what you eat. Do not worry then, saying, what will you eat? What will you drink? What will you wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, all the nations, everybody in the world thinks like this. Everybody thinks here below, got to take care of the bottom line. Sorry. I know we got to be in the word or something about that, but I'm going to go pay, take care of business. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount with the kingdom platform about needs. He goes from don't serve wealth to the ultimate test of whether we're serving wealth. I don't have any extra. I'm just trying to, to, to take care of the basics, the basic subsistence. He's talking about that too. And it takes you beyond the sun. The biblical wisdom is consistent. It's a consistent message from Genesis through Revelation. And the challenge here is where is your hope? Where is your recourse for deliverance? It is only in our Creator Back to the temporal concerns of our time. So the money becomes worthless and we end up with a Weimar Republic kind of barrel of, uh, or, or wheelbarrow of, uh, of cash for one loaf of bread or something. We beat Zimbabwe on the world uh, inflation record or something because of the idiocy of our time, the Egyptian rulers of Revelation or, uh, Isaiah 19. So we end up with that circumstance temporally and the money becomes worthless and then, and then it's barter. We lose the entire civilization. People stop working because there's no money in the work, and so they have to take care of their families, and now they're, they're searching for food, and pretty much the trucks stop running, and you don't have any food. There's three weeks of food on the shelves, or one week if we start worrying about it, and everybody goes and grabs all the food and hoards it. And so now we have a, a crash course in how our grandparents lived, or their grandparents, and we have to figure it out. So we figure it out. And we do it for God's sake. We do it making disciples. We do it with concern, working hard with our hands so we have something to share with others. And we learn something that God's told us all along, that the Bible establishes the local church as a household. And we're members of one another. And we care for one another. And we pull together. And we work as a team. And that local church becomes way more important than we've ever thought. We trust the Lord. And we do what we do for his sake. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word, the challenge of our time, and the clarity of the gospel as the answer to our ultimate question. What must I do to be saved? In the time in which we live, Father, there are huge challenges on the horizon. And, and, and I mean the moral things. How can a post-Christian civilization embrace Jesus Christ? How can a world filled with the deception of your enemy so consumed in this culture with self-distraction and diversion, with, with never a thought to, to matters of consequence, that when matters of consequence arise, it's just whatever people want. It's, it's just seeking pleasure. When, when this culture 
is challenged, Father, how can it rise to any occasion besides selfishness and selling out? Father, we're worried about the politics, but uh, it's not the elected officials so much as the electorate that empowers the elected officials. So we pray for our people, our nation, our time. Pray for all the saints and their effectiveness. Father, you've given us all a mission, and it's making disciples wherever we find ourselves. We all have that missionary zeal, that responsibility to be about your work. So we need maturity. We need clarity. We need uh, insight from your word, and we need the ability, the open mouth, to share what you've shown us in your word. Make it so, Father. Strengthen us to be about your work in good times and bad. And thank you so much for the good times we are enjoying and have enjoyed. Perpetuate them to your glory, Father, or put us through times of leanness so that we can glorify you that way. But whatever you do, strengthen us, equip us, and let us constantly enjoy what Paul says, that we know your power toward us who believe. In Christ's name, amen.